It's Sedimentary, my dear, a conversational podcast about all things geology. I'm your host, Ellen. And I'm Jane. What are we talking about today? Ooh, well, we are going to talk about something that gives me the shimmy shakes. You said that when you were teasing this episode last time. I did. <laughs> did I say, probably word for word, I said that. Probably. <laughs> uh, give me the quakes. Because it's earthquakes, Ellen. Whoa, earthquakes. <laughs> Do you like my ad living? <laughs> yes, Ellen, earthquakes. Uh, but first, before we get into the meat of our subject here, I would like to say that we got some more responses from listeners. Ooh, yeah. Shout out to Gustavo, who's a geologist in Chile. Who Woohoo! Sent Chile. us a message on Instagram. Yes, he did. Including really good geology puns. Yeah, that was the best part it. about it. It was amazing. But what I wanted to say about Chile is that Chile has had one of the most powerful earthquakes ever recorded in the world. So Is that a good or bad thing? <laughs> It's probably not a great thing, but nope. it was convenient timing for Gustavo to message us, uh, <laughs> considering the topic of our, our podcast today. But it was recorded in 1960, uh, the Valdivia earthquake in Chile. It was a 9.4 to a 9.6 on the moment magnitude scale, which we'll talk about later. The resulting tsunami that came from this particular earthquake mm. actually crossed the entire Pacific Ocean. What? Yeah. and I didn't think that was possible. Yeah, it was good times. And the epicenter was, pro- it was about 550 kilo- 570 kilometers south of Santiago, or in American terms, it was in 350 miles south for us <laughs> plebs. And that's okay. I can't envision either, really. <laughs> on, it's a scale that's too much for me to imagine. <laughs> it's quite a distance. Yes. And it was probably about like estimated to be about three to six billion dollars u.s worth of damages and that's adjusted for today's inflation wow so an incredible amount of damage that we had to pay that's for. a lot a lot of damage <laughs> so it was a significant earthquake and we're going to talk about all of those things i just said all of those descriptors i used throughout this episode mm-hmm. but to get to the exciting parts of earthquakes we're going to start with an even more exciting thing, crustal deformation. Whoa. <laughs> That's the level of excitement you should have. It's <laughs> very important. It's interesting. I you know. It's very important to understand awesome. how earthquakes occur by talking about how crust deforms, you know, how the Earth's crust changes its shape over time. But while that's the foundational knowledge, it's not nearly as exciting as watching buildings shiver and then crumble to the ground you know so 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 bear with us while we get through this uh and we'll talk about it i think it's interesting but obviously you know i'm biased so we'll uh we'll start with our our discussion of crustal deformation which is one of the big things that structural geologists study so if you find that this topic is very interesting to you maybe you should go into structural geology but then maybe you should also take structural geology and realize how difficult it is and then maybe change your career path. Like some people, <laughs> I'm not naming names, did. So Somebody who definitely doesn't have firsthand experience with that. Some, book, kind of some person who's not in this room right now talking into a microphone, but, <laughs> you know, just throwing it out there. But, but yeah, no, the 
when we talk about crustal deformation, we talk about anything that's related to tectonic activity. So the term tectonic I've used before, and we use this term a lot, but it means any activity that's relating to the Earth's crust and the processes that take place in the crust. So easy examples of this would be like mountain belts, domes, mm. basins, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And what happens is when you get tectonic activity, you can see things like uplifted oceanic materials. So you can get ideas of what the ocean crust was looking like. You can get ideas, you get to see structures in geologic material. You get to see faults from Earth smashing things up, mm. which is really cool. And the faults are really important to us because that's something that's related to earthquakes. So we're going to talk about that later, a little later on too. Okay. So by studying the orientation of features such as faults, folds, uh, we can actually reconstruct the history of Earth, which is pretty, mm. pretty wild. Pretty wild. It's why we know things about what the Earth looked like millions of years ago is by mm. studying the kind of changes that occurred in the rocks that we can still see today. Hmm. So we will that eventually. Pretty cool. I don't know. It's cool to me. We'll probably almost do almost as cool as watching buildings shake and fall down. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be we'll be doing historical. So you get into that in historical geology. You talk about which is generally people will do that in second semester geology if they take second semester, and mm. we will definitely be having several episodes talking about various historical geology topics. But uh, for now, we're going to leave it to all the physical stuff that we can see and enjoy. Cool. So last time we talked about hydrothermal vents when we spoke about sulfides, which are the spooky minerals. <laughs> the, the spookiest minerals in all the land. Ooh, spooky. And also the sea, since they Ooh, all come from hydrothermal vents. <laughs> but yeah, rock <laughs> fractures are very common sites for hydrothermal mineralization, which is don't, where... Wait, don't you mean holes in the bottom of the sea? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully some people didn't listen beyond the end <laughs> music in our podcast so they couldn't hear that but yes i mean holes in rocks fractures in rocks uh they're common sites to get hydrothermal mineralization so you get your metal or mineral deposits that way mm. the thing about faults that we'll talk more about is that they show weaknesses in otherwise hard rock mm. and faults are also really important because a lot of our current building codes are defined by what kind of faults are in the area and how they move and how we expect the land to move in the area. So it changes. Mm. So certain areas of the world, like California, have a lot of building codes that are based around the fault system that's nearby. What mm. do you think the name of the, in Southern California, what's that big fault that's nearby? The Hollywood Fault. <laughs> the Hollywood Walk of... Walk of Fault? Yeah. <laughs> The San Andreas Fault. Yeah, the San Andreas Fault. So a lot of the building codes are based on what they expect. Oh, you did like my joke? I mean, <laughs> It was a great joke. The the San Andreas Fault is where they expect a lot of, you know, shimmy shaking to occur. So they Activity. Base, yes, they base a lot of their building codes on that mm. versus somewhere that's more, up, you know, in the eastern coast of the United States, we have a passive plate margin, meaning that we don't have activity that's you know, actively building mountains or anything like that. It's not nearly not, as dramatic. Not so, often. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. So we, we don't have. Teaser for later. <laughs> yes. So we don't have a significant earthquake code compared to what you would find in California. Like there's mm -hmm. still some mitigation efforts you need to have because it's expected that there's a possibility of potential earthquakes, but it's not nearly as strict or even like Japan where they have special foundations so that it allows buildings to have some mm. sway to them especially for like the tall buildings because mm -hmm. 
because it prevents them from being damaged during earthquakes. But anyway, so we'll do more to that. But let's talk about deformation. What okay. is deformation? It's not defamation. Uh, <laughs> so we're not insulting these rocks. We're not oh. putting them out on the web. I would never insult a rock. And telling them how tweeting terrible about they their are. Lives? Yeah, we're not tweeting about them. We're not uh, saying that they're, we're not maligning their character. <laughs> Instead, we're talking about the point at which rocks either break or flow. And all rocks mm. have a point at which they they lose it, go crazy, oh baby. So <laughs> we we talk about deformation in general terms. We talk about like any change that occurs in their size, their shape, their orientation, or the position of a rock mass is how we defer, define, excuse me, how we define deformation. Mm. So these deformation events or deformation usually occurs along tectonic plate margins and boundaries. Okay. Which is not terribly surprising to you, I don't think. No. You mean where there's movement, rocks get smushed? That's what you're saying. I mean, it's a shocker. It's a shocker <laughs> to all of us. But there are different terms that we use for what causes deformation. Okay. So in geology, we use the terms force, stress, and strain. Mm -hmm. Those sound like all the same thing to me. So. <laughs> That's the thing. Like They are very similar when we're talking about human beings <laughs> for stress and strain are all very similar to each other but they're very specific terms when it comes to geology okay. so you can't really use them interchangeably so these actions that affect deformation let's start with the first one which is force okay we may if you've taken physics you would be familiar with force a force is what puts a stationary object into motion or changes the motion of a moving body okay so uh when you have a cat and it just shoves stuff off the table that's a force mm-hmm Cat you know, paw force. Yeah, cat paw have force and shoves things off the tables. Yes. And force is a very generic term in the geology world. So instead of using force, we actually use the term stress to describe forces that actually deform rocks. Okay. So stress is essentially just a type of force. Uh, stress is the amount of force that is applied to a given area. So okay. the, the magnitude of stress is not just due to the amount of force applied it also matters the surface area that it's covering so in physics we give we have this experiment that not everybody has done but a lot of people have done where you have a board and on the board you have several nails tacked into the board that's like the length of a human body and there's nails every few inches have you seen this mm -hmm. before you've seen this no kind of experiment. i didn't you haven't do seen this experiment this? oh we did this in high school so the we didn't do it in my class. <laughs> the the thing is with physics that you learn is that force that's applied over a larger surface area is less intense than if it's applied over a smaller surface area. Yeah, at every given point in the surface area, it'll be less. Yes. So yeah. what we did is there was a the force, board. The overall force is the same. There's a human-sized board with nails on it, yeah. and you can lay down on it, and yes. it doesn't feel uncomfortable because... In rock terms, it's stress <laughs> acting across a large surface area. Yeah. And the stress is equally distributed across the surface. All the nails. Yes. Versus just taking one step on one nail is a lot more painful because yes. it's such a small surface area comparatively. Well, it's so, like your whole weight across a bunch of nails or your whole weight on one nail. Exactly. So That's a good analogy. Because weight is also a force. It's the gra force correct. of gravity, gravity pulling on your mass. Correct. So mass of your body. Yeah. So stress. Uh, I, the thing is, I think we should petition to just say stress for humans also, <laughs> for any force that we apply to things that just stress, but that's fine. We'll do that. 
And then the term differential stress is, I think you can guess. What do you think differential stress means? No, I mean, I just looked at your notes, so it's cheating, but... <laughs> You could have just said it. <laughs> I would have gone with it. I would have guess anded you. <laughs> uh, well, I know it's just not a genuine guess. I can't. I'm not a good actor, you know. Um, yeah, it's stress that's applied unevenly across the surface. I yeah, guess exactly. So yes, you either have stress that's applied equally, which will overall be less stress on an area, or Unless it's like concentrated to one small surface area. Right. Or, which is, then it's just ouch. Or <laughs> you have unequal stress that's applied. Some stress is applied to one area differently than it's applied to another. Mm. And one of the ways that can happen with rocks is if you have different kinds of rocks near each other, but mm. they're all being affected by some kind of stress, you'll get different, you'll get differential stress occurring from them. Mm. Okay. So when we talk about stress, stress is actually set into different categories, like main main types of stress i guess you could say okay so the three main types of stress you have are you have compressional stress which is i'm going to say it this way this is the the technical definition differential stress that shortens rock bodies thickens crust by folding flowing and faulting so i want you to think of it this way i want you to have like a cube in your hands if you imagine you have a cube yes and I have a cube I want you to take your hands, put your two hands in front of your face mm -hmm. so they're parallel to each other. Mm -hmm. And I want you to just smoosh them together. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what happens is with your... So the cube deforms your... like up. Yes. Right? <laughs> so basically you get this, the cube gets squished inwards and smooshed upwards. Okay. So you get a more, uh, an upward rectangle rather than just a cube. Mm -hmm. So that's what's happening with these, these rock bodies is that it generally happens at convergent plate boundaries. Okay. And I, I think it may be only be found in convergent plate boundaries, but two different rock bodies smashing into each other, which makes sense because convergent, last time we talked about, is a destructive boundary where you create mountains. Mm -hmm. We didn't, was it last time? No, it was a couple times ago. But anyway, the point is. Uh, yeah, it was probably like the <laughs> third episode or something I think you talked about. Yeah, we talked about it. It's fine. Geomorphology. It's fine. So but the thing is, when you get this. When you get this kind of stress, you can actually see it down to the mineral level. So mineral wow. grains in these rocks and even, I mean, it'll be at the molecular level too, but the mineral grains in these mm. rocks and rock units will actually shorten in the direction parallel to the plane of max stress, which makes sense. So it's like where the most compression is happening, they're getting shorter and shorter because they're being yep. shoved away from it. Um, or like you can also imagine it's like being squeezing a toothpaste. You know, if you're squeezing yeah. toothpaste, the toothpaste will come out the top because you're putting stress on the middle of it. Yeah. And if you had both the top and the bottom of the toothpaste tube cut, your stress would be forced out the top and the bottom, which is what mm. happens with rocks. They're not confined the same way mm -hmm. a toothpaste tube is. So. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, this type of flow is considered brittle too, which we'll talk about a little bit later, like what that means. But brittle means that, you know, it's to break. It's not, it doesn't have any flow to it. Like witty. Correct. So okay. the next type of stress we're going to talk about is tensional. Okay. Tensional stress is when you take a rock unit and you're actually pulling it apart rather than pushing it. Okay. Okay. So compression made sense to me. Tension is, oh, well, like pulling it. Okay. Yeah. It's tense, you know? Yeah. It has a lot of feels. It's uh -huh. real upset. It's, All being these pull things it's sound pulling itself like apart. Okay. It's pulling itself <laughs> apart. Tensional stress. Okay. So generally this occurs in rift zones, which makes sense because these are places where you have divergent. Yes. Yeah, uh -huh. so you have divergent plate boundaries. Yes. At the upper crust, so closer to the surface, 
you'll get faulting, which kind of makes sense because if you're pulling it apart. Well, the upper crust is more brittle, isn't it? Yes. So it will. So it's just it going will to just, like pull apart. It'll just crack. Okay. And then at depth, you actually get a flow that's similar to to putty, um, and we call this more of a plastic flow. So instead of mm. actually cracking, it kind of because it's hotter, it's warmer the farther mm. down you go, and there's more pressure, so it mm. actually kind of sort of moves it out to the sides rather it'll move the rocks out to the sides and you'll get a valley or a divot rather than mm -hmm. rather than it just cracking you mm -hmm. don't you don't just get like an open chasm to the middle of the earth you know you get yeah. <laughs> you, you get some faulting You're saying it's, yeah it's not an open chasm all the way down it's Correct. open and then in the where the rock is more plastic in deeper in the in the crust are we still talking about the Correct. crust or with, okay so not even in the mantle so deeper in the crust is still hot enough that there's uh, like it's stretched, but it's not like just a complete crack to the center of the earth. Yeah, it just stretches out. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. It doesn't break. Okay. So that is the second type, and then the third type of stress that we so have. We talked about compressional and tensional. So Correct. Far. Yes. Okay. So and the third the, type. The third type. Uh, so we also talked about convergent boundaries and divergent boundaries. Do you remember the third kind of boundary that we have? Transform fault boundary. Yeah. So the third type of stress that we have is called shear which is caused by differential stress. So the other two were okay. kind of more, they're more consistent types of stress rather than being okay. differential, meaning that it's, it's more equal. That doesn't mean that you don't have unequal stress. Like there will definitely be places where you have compressional stress that is not equal depending on, you know, what kind of rocks you're pushing against or whatever. But, mm -hmm. but shear is definitely caused by differential stress and there's multiple kinds of shear. But one of the most common types is similar to, imagine that you have a deck of cards Okay. And they're all stacked on top of each other. But you know that playing cards kind of are slippery a little bit? Yes. So if you take your finger and you push it against, like, say, the top ten cards in the deck, uh -huh. and you push the deck, yeah. the bottom of the deck, though, is it moving or does it stay still? Uh, it, I mean, it usually stays pretty still. Yeah. So you get kind of a a rhombus shape out of your deck where you have, so like, the like, top portion. you're saying you're pushing them to, like, the side, I guess. Yeah. Out, so if you imagine it, yeah, you're pushing the short side forward oh okay so yeah yeah so the long side stays flat flush against each other and you just push the sort side forward yeah what the happens... flat part of the card stay together yes and then some of them shift forward and some of them shift back in the deck yeah, yes I understand so what, what you end up getting is you get kind of a an angular almost it's not quite but like maybe like a 60 degree angle of your deck yeah. where part of it is pushed forward and part of it stays where it was positionally yeah. on the so table I guess if you imagine it as a deck then it becomes like a rhombus where it's like you had a rectangle and now it's sheared to partially to the it's slanted. <laughs> yeah, it's sheared. No, but you use the, the absolute correct term. At, yeah. at depth, you get solid state flow, so you don't get nearly as much movement. And at mm, top, you get huge okay. – at, at crust surfaces, you get huge offsets. So these are so along – So you're saying because of the difference of the material, like the elasticity of the material, plastic – The material, the heat, the, material. the confining pressure. We're going to talk about oh, those. Oh, okay, I see. All of those things change how the material flows or whether it does or doesn't flow, whether it's brittle or if it's plastic or, you know, okay. whether it has any flow or not um, depends on a couple of different factors. But, but yeah, yeah, so that's I sheer. I think the deck of cards is a good analogy, though, because, like, yeah, it's kind of like in layers and yeah. kind of some of it moves more than the other part, another part, if you push just on the top. Yeah. And one of the things that they did in my textbook that I was looking at, which we'll, we'll reference as we always do, we reference mm -hmm. our sources. But one of the things that they did in my textbook was they had 
on the deck of cards, they had drawn a circular dot on the sides, on the edge of all the cards. So when you push it, you could see the, the, the solid shape of the circle stretch into kind of a sideways oval mm -hmm. while it was being pushed. And the reason why they did that is because that's a type of stress that causes permanent change to the rock. Mm. So they wanted you to see that the permanent change was like there's permanently an oval there now instead of having mm. a circular shape anymore. So. Okay. So now that we've gone through all the types of stress, there's also strain, which <laughs> is stress with an irreversible change, which is exactly what I was just talking about, where you have you have your rock layer that is doesn't snap back anymore it stays in the shape that it was forced into so something could change due to stress that then change back yes okay but something that changes due to, to strain can never change back to strain yes yes okay. exactly so some examples of strain would be things that are like the appalachian mountains for example they are <laughs> yeah, still there <laughs> yes they are a permanent remnant of an event that happened we call them the appalachian anticlines which is a type of Cold, but we're not going to get into that today. Okay. But they're much easier to see from an airplane than they are from the ground. I'll put it that way. So that's an example of strain would be the Appalachian Mountains. Or okay. there's my book gave examples of rocks that are near Dorset, England, which are also remnants of the same collision, just on the other side of the Atlantic. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's it's more folding and faulting and all that fun stuff. So geologists discovered by having fun lab times. Okay. That sounds fun. When stress is applied gradually, rocks first deform elastically. So that means that the changes from an elastic deformation are recoverable. How do they test that at a lab? So thank you for asking. <laughs> they had a series of vases made out of various types of rock material okay and then they subjected it to heat and pressure oh and then waited for stuff to happen okay at very when you levels. say a vase do you mean like an actual like like a a three-dimensionally u-shaped object yeah or is that a special get the, get the is there a photo yeah oh wow why <laughs> sorry they'll hear me flip flipping onto this so it's, i might cut it it's let fine. me reread this a marble cylinder deformed in the lab by applying thousands of pounds of load from above. Okay. Each sample was deformed in an environment that duplicated the confining pressure found at various depths. Okay. Notice that when the confining pressure was low, the sample deformed by brittle fracture, whereas when it was high pressure, the sample deformed plastically. What? So it's literally just a uniform cylinder made out of marble. Okay. And then they subjected it to varying around amounts of pressure. Uh -huh. And when it was low pressure, you get like a bunch of cracks in it. Yeah. When it was like an intermediate pressure, it actually turns into this beautiful, beautiful, perfect vase shape where it's like thick in the middle and thin on both sides. And then when it was oh. high confining pressure, it actually deformed it into a, it completely changed the shape of the cylinder. So it's not. But it was elastic. So it bounced back eventually. No, no, no. This was not elastic. This was oh, plastic. It moved plastic. Plastic. Sorry. I, yes. Plastic. So it moved with flow. It didn't bounce back though. So let me. I'm Which also, so it moved oh. with flow, but then eventually, but after they released the pressure, it stayed. Oh, it was permanently deformed. So this is like unconfined. This was like they didn't do anything uh -huh. to it. The yeah. first one is the brittle flow, which is like a low, um, a low confining pressure, and then the middle yes. one was intermediate pressure okay. and then high pressure. So uh -huh. you can see it's like the whole shape of the 
this one is like you can see it's like perfect intermediate pressure gave this like perfect vase shape and then the last one it actually changed the well, inside it's like it's thick it's thick it's a thick boy now yeah whereas these ones kind of kept their thickness so that's brittle versus brittle versus plastic flow okay so brittle plastic okay brittle plastic so with brittle essentially you have breaking of the material yes it breaks yes with plastic all the material is still kept together it stays together but the shape changes yeah they term that it's called solid state flow where it's a solid that moves in liquid ish flow kind of state but still a solid it's it's fun what things can do under heat and pressure yeah i was gonna say it's just super hot yeah i get it It's just it's interesting to think of a solid moving like that, but yeah, it's cool. But it's me. so high pressure that it's just also somewhat unfathomable. It's to people. Like to when people. you think of a rock, yeah, because like well, when you think of like your interactions with rocks, right? Yes. On the surface, if like, you apply a significant amount of pressure, it'll like whatever you think of a significant amount of pressure, it'll just like it'll crack or break or whatever. Yeah, you run it over with a car or whatever. Yeah, or like you. Hit it with a you hammer. Know, yeah. Or hit it with a wrecking ball or something like that. <laughs> um, Did you come in like a wrecking ball? A wrecking ball. ball. <laughs> yeah, I never hit so hard in love. All I wanted was to break your walls, Jane. <laughs> I never so... expected for this rock to wreck me. <laughs> but like the point is, I think like that's the experience that most people would have with a solid rock at at standard temperature and pressure. Yes. So that was the difference between brittle and plastic. But okay. elastic is when you have pressure, then the pressure suddenly releases and the the rock literally bounces back. Oh. So there's some... We'll probably talk oh, about this later. Oh, now I understand. Okay, I understand how you explained it to me that way. Yes. Now. So with elastic deformation, so it's recoverable is the term that they use, but it's similar to like a rubber band. So you you... When yeah. you stretch a rubber band and you let go of it, it snaps back to its original shape and size. Mm-hmm. So once you remove the stress, the rocks will stra- come back to their original shape and size. But the limit of elastic deformation comes when you have surpassed the strength of the rock. So if the rock, you have put so much temperature, pressure, time, too much stress on a rock it starts to flow so it'll either flow ductile excuse me it will flow which means it's a ductile deformation or it will fracture which is a brittle deformation okay so fractures again form normally at surface closer to surface and mm-hmm. then ductile deformations form deeper down when you can get flow you can get heat and pressure and all that fun stuff so but yes once you you will have in if the rock if the pressure suddenly lets off of the rock you will have elastic rebound, but if it's had too much pressure on it for too long, you that's when you get your deformation, essentially. Okay. Like a permanent deformation. So an easy example of elastic deformation is when you think about glaciers. Some people probably don't think about this, but glaciers are seasonal. So sometimes mm-hmm. glaciers are growing and sometimes they're shrinking, but they're always in motion. They're never stationary. And when you have... A glacier that's growing a huge amount of weight is pressed down onto a part of the earth 
-hmm. And sometimes the earth is carved out from that. So sometimes Mm -hmm. glaciers can carve out chunks of the earth. And sometimes it's just pressed down. So when you have a glacier, the weight of it actually deforms the ground underneath Mm -hmm. it. But when your glacier starts to melt, you actually get something called rebound, where the earth will actually rebound back up to a higher altitude. Like altitude? Yeah, really? basically, wow. yeah, it basically pops back up. Oh, so it's isostasy. We'll talk about it some other time. Um, we'll talk about ice another day. <laughs> yeah. But yes, so... Interesting. That's cool. So you have rebound, which is... So that's one of the things about having the ice caps melting right now is that you're actually there's actually rebound occurring with the arctic and antarctic where when the weight wow. is finally being released from them they're mm. actually slowly rising like the landforms are slowly rising as well mm. which interesting. is interesting yeah interesting so you also get that it's just the earth tries to come back to a more neutral plane so once you get the weight off of it it's like <sighs> breathes a sigh of relief <laughs> yes lets it gut out you know <laughs> You unbutton the jean buttons and it lets it gut out. But <laughs> so anyway, so okay, so we've done. So wait, can I just ask? Yes, just let's do a summary. Let's do said. a summary. How about I give you a summary? And you tell me if it's right. Yes. So okay, so stress can be applied to an area. Uh, it's the amount of forces applied to an area overall. Yes. So you can have like the same amount of stress applied over an area, or you can have what's called differential stress. Yes. Oh, and also for stress that isn't differential, it can be compressing, which is like smushing together, or mm-hmm. tension, which is pulling apart. Yep. So with differential stress, that's when it's that's when there's pressure, when there's force that's applied unevenly, which can cause changes to happen in different ways at different depending on the pressure and uh, temperature of the material. I yes. Guess. And then strain is when there's been so much stress that the material can't return to its original state. yeah it's like us after finals yeah pretty much you're never the same after college all <laughs> our all our college listeners out there <laughs> okay good so i got it oh and then there's okay so one other thing that i was a little bit confused about while you're talking but i understand now is that so everybody else might be i guess is yeah so there's different types of strain there's different types of flow okay there's different types of flow that are caused by stress correct right so there's different types of flow there's there's elastic, which is where the thing deforms and then bounces back. Yes. It changes back after the stress is removed. Yes. There's also plastic. Yes. So plastic is where the material, I guess, like deforms completely, but in a way where it doesn't necessarily break apart. It... Jane will post the photo that she showed me, <laughs> right? Yeah, right, I can post. Jane? Yeah, I can do that. Okay. Yes. So I would say that plastic and ductile are two that are very similar to e- each other. Okay. Where they, they have flow, basically. It flows. It's a solid, but it flows like a liquid. Think of mm-hmm. it that way. Because of the amount of pressure. Yeah. And the temperature. And then brittle is like what you would imagine probably happening, which happens at warmer temperatures and less pressure, like closer to surface pressure, which is where the the material cracks or breaks. Yeah. Brittle is more like when you have a pencil. Uh, so like ductile or plastic flow is when you have a pencil and you start to bend it. Oh. So it, it has like a change in shape, mm-hmm. but then when you bend it too much, it cracks. That's your snap. Mm. That's your your brittle, brittle. deformation. Okay, yes. I guess that makes sense. So you can have a material that has kind of both. I guess all three of these things can happen to the same material. The same it just material. depends on how much time, how much heat, how much pressure, all that, and like fun the stuff. type of material. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Good. Good. I summary. understand. That was a very good summary. 
So the thing about the reason why you need to know about deformation and all this is because yeah, we thought we were talking about earthquakes. Yes, because <laughs> the most most commonly earthquakes occur when you have stored energy that was from an elastic deformation, oh. and when that elastic deformation is released as the, as the rocks snap back into their original state, that's when you get an earthquake. Do glaciers cause earthquakes? They can, but oh. not normally. Okay. That that type of uh, release is very slow, so you wouldn't really yeah really okay. Get, so as we mentioned, temperature affects it, you know, the rock type, how much confining pressure there is. If you're farther down, you have more flow, so you have more ductile or plastic flow. Mm-hmm. If you're closer to the surface, you have more brittle flow because the surface temperature is lower. Mm-hmm. You know, so temperature, they're kind of interrelated. And rock type, depending on what kind of rocks you have, some rocks are have really strong bonds, so they have strong molecular bonds. Mm. Do you think if you have a strong bond, do you think it would flow ductily, or do you think it would break brittily? Because mm. it's real strong. I'm going to say flow ductily. No, they're brittle. Oh, okay. Because they their bonds are so strong, it takes a lot of strain to break them, and once it does, it just snaps. It doesn't have much flow. So when you have okay. rocks that are weaker or more weakly cemented together, like sedimentary rocks, Mm-hmm. Or there are some metamorphic rocks that have foliation in them, which are kind of zones of, you know, they're like weak zones within the rock. Mm-hmm. Those actually flow more ductily, but the okay. the more strongly put together, the less flow that they will have. Okay. So some of the, the most, unsurprisingly, some of the things that flow the best would be glacial ice. It has a lot of flow yeah. because the bonds are relatively, you know, the bonds for ice are relatively loose. They break down relatively easily. So that's why they have a lot of ductile or plastic flow good old water yeah um other things more like quartz quartzite that sort of thing would be more brittle because they're held together very strongly Hmm. diamonds i guess if you could break a diamond it would be brittle (laughs) but and we can see oh and time is kind of the last factor so you can see some rocks are affected over time more quickly than others and Hmm. we can't really replicate this in labs but we can observe for example people have built benches and stuff out of marble and marble sags under its own weight hmm. even over like just a couple hundred years it doesn't take that long for marble oh. to destroy itself or you can see this even with you know bookshelves which is you know obviously not a mineral or a rock but if you have a bookshelf and you're like me and you put way too many books on it within a couple of years you may destroy your bookshelf because it will cause the weight of the books <laughs> will cause them to sag in the middle you know? the weight of itself causes it to yes marble yes because it's oh. it's heavy but it's also you know when you have a bench it's suspended above the ground yeah 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 so it just slowly starts to sag in the middle oh and then through all these awesome phenomenons we get things that are called rock structures which are things that could be as large as you know the alps and they could be as small as just a little slab of rock nearby <laughs> okay. but that term is a very generic term and then we have outcrops mm-hmm. which are really cool to me because they are sites where you have exposed bedrock versus oh, ro- so outcrop always exposed bedrock yes an outcrop oh, okay. is defined as exposed bedrock, bedrock at the surface i always thought it was just like exposed rocks no <laughs> like you specifically know. bedrock the okay. the thing is there are also things such as road cuts which are basically human created outcrops mm-hmm. where we've dynamited a yeah, hole yeah, yeah. or something Through to like make a road yeah exactly yeah okay so those, I guess, could be considered outcrops now. But eh. the thing that's so great about outcrops is they are required for geologists to create maps. This is how we create subsurface maps of various bedrock features. It's mm-hmm. basically a, like a game of connect the dots 
where you have this outcrop that's at the northwest corner and then we have this one that's at the southeast corner yeah, and this outcrop and this outcrop yeah and so you have to connect it together it's just really cool to me but i don't know maybe we'll have a day where we talk about that so rock structures so which is any of those phenomenons that we we can see with rocks there's things called folds and faults okay. and joints okay but I'm not going to talk about folds or joints today. We already today. talked about faults, kind of. No, we're going to talk even more in depth about faults because we just Ooh. talked about def. Well, we talked about was deformation. We didn't even talk okay. about faults now. So faults are just fractures in the crust where there is a appreciable amount of displacement. So that can be a tiny amount of displacement. So a couple feet amount of displacement. Yeah, appreciable is the term they used in my textbook, which I thought was funny. It's like but there's some. <laughs> there is an amount that you can see but we're not going to tell you how much that amount is okay i feel like a lot of geology sometimes it's very scientific and sometimes it gets kind of like eh, you know when you see it <laughs> so it just depends on what you're looking at okay so sometimes there are you know little tiny things that you can see in a road cut or in an outcrop you know so you'll have a bed that was clearly like a line of sedimentary beds it's like a piece of tiramisu you have these beautiful layers and then you have one piece of tiramisu that's higher up than the other piece of tiramisu. Yes. That's that's an, a visible sign of like a fault. Maybe I should okay. buy some tiramisu and then recreate this. Not because <laughs> I want tiramisu or Are anything. Sure? <laughs> I want tiramisu. Sounds personal. <laughs> yes. And then some faults, on the other hand, are massive. So mm -hmm. I'm bringing it back. I'm sorry. Bring it back San to Andreas America. Fault. But the San Andreas Fault in California, it's actually it's considered a fault zone because it's so huge and it's it's actually made up of a series of interconnected faults like most of the state of california yeah well no it's it's most of southern california it doesn't go all the way up it goes out of the ocean once you get to, to san francisco yeah no north of san francisco once you get to manchester california that's when it goes off the coast okay but it goes all the way down into like mexicali mexico it's Ooh. actually nearly it's about 1300 kilometers long the entire wow. fault zone so that's 780 miles in american and yeah. <laughs> or any i don't know if anybody else even uses imperial, imperial. still i don't, I don't know. think anybody uses i think there's a couple places, i think there's like one or two other places but mostly america so the san andreas fault zone is made up of the san andreas fault but it's also made up of a couple of other different faults that are there around la or los angeles for anybody who doesn't know <laughs> and they're all part of the same system and the fault okay. continues off into the ocean too as well yeah Fault zones can also be, not just are they, they're long, but they can also be kilometers wide too. So a lot of times it's easier to see them from above. So a lot of our studying that we do in geomorphology specifically is we looked at aerial photography. So photos of things that were taken from planes. Mm -hmm. So it was much easier for us to try to measure it from a plane picture than trying to yeah. calculate from the ground how big this thing is. You the know? San Andreas Fault is easy to see from above. It yes, huge. it's much easier to see from above because it's so huge. Yeah. But there are definitely indications of it on the ground, too, like mm -hmm. fences that have moved apart from each other over the years and stuff like that. Roads that have moved apart. Yeah, yeah river like systems or canals that have moved, clearly mm -hmm. been offset. That's also another way you can see it. So they're all different types of faults, but I'm not going to get into all that today because it's kind of a lot because I want to get into earthquakes, which is the main event. And okay. if, I, if I talked about every single fault type, we would be here for like four hours. <laughs> We'd be talking about them normal faults and them thrust faults and the reverse thrust faults, and it would just be too much. So we're going to go straight I'm into already, earthquakes. I'm already overwhelmed. <laughs> Let's talk about earthquakes. Although they're pretty great. Faults are, are interesting and we'll absolutely have a day we for them. We can do another but thing. 
Yes. But yes, now let's talk about earthquakes. Okay. So what is an earthquake, Ellen? Are you asking what me What is an earthquake, you? Ellen? Uh, Like tell you what I think? Yeah, tell me what you <laughs> think and then I'll tell you what the technical definition is. Well, usually it's like there's a, some kind of shift in the, in deep, it deep in the, I guess the crust of the earth that is usually caused by like a plate by tectonic movement of some kind and uh that causes it's basically like a wave that moves through the ground i'm cheating because you told me a little bit about this <laughs> but also you can feel it if you've ever been if you've ever felt an earthquake it feels like waves like it's very strange so i mean it can but it comes in waves you can tell that it's like a, a wave that's traveling through the ground a so, wave of pressure that's caused by like a movement that moves through the ground you're you're really correct the way that they describe it in textbooks is a vibration of earth okay. produced by the rapid release of energy uh that's that's the technical definition uh -huh. so the thing is like sometimes it's deep in the earth and it's caused by as you mentioned tectonic activity sometimes it's but not it can be caused by like volcanoes and stuff too like yeah volcanoes can cause them um there have been links to fracking that causes them because when you're doing fracking you're injecting fluid into the no ground fracking. so building it causes up pressure with the fluid in the yes ground. it's yes. building up pressure but it's also basically providing a lot of lubrication to whatever rocks are there and so it allows them to shift and so you get basically an artificially created version of mm -hmm. an earthquake quakes so and there's other ways too that you can get you know earthquake based well you said of... like maybe a glacier maybe but <laughs> like not i think i would think it wouldn't really i can't imagine that it's such a slow pop back that i don't think it would yeah. really cause an actual earthquake i think it would be more like a you'd be staying on the ground and then three years later you would notice that it's higher than it was <laughs> you probably wouldn't even notice because you're standing on it exactly but if you I measured it you would notice yeah i don't think it would really matter but yes. let's talk about the anatomy of an earthquake okay. so when you have an earthquake you have something called the focus so okay. the focus is the source location of the earthquake underground okay and the energy that's released from a focus always radiates in 360 degrees. It's not confined. It doesn't just go straight up to the top. It doesn't go straight to the core. It actually just radiates in all directions, mm -hmm. however it pleases. Okay. So it moves, it, and in the way it radiates, it radiates as waves. And we'll talk about the okay. different, there are different kinds of waves, and we'll talk about them. But yeah, it radiates out in waves. Cool. So just imagine beautiful flowing hair or something like this. <laughs> Just like Fabio, like in all different directions. You know, it's great. <laughs> so sometimes we have something called, or sometimes people call it a hypocenter, but I I always call it a focus. And I've, I've rarely, rarely ever heard anybody call it a hypocenter. I Almost feel like that is the focus. term that I heard in like elementary school, but I've never heard that since then. Yeah, I think it's outdated now, but I, I always hear people say focus or foci for multiple. Uh, I mean, focuses. that makes sense. I feel like that's a more generic term for the fo focal point of something. So, yeah. Yeah. So an easy way to imagine kind of the action that you get when you have a focus is if you take a stone and you drop it into like a bathtub. I mean, first of all, you crack your tub, but second of all, you, <laughs> you get drop a small stone. <laughs> you get waves, but they go in all directions, kind of indiscriminately. Mm -hmm. And the energy, the farther you get away from the focus, the less energy it has. So the waves get smaller and smaller the farther mm -hmm. away you get. Uh, the thing is, we have really sensitive equipment, so we can pick it up, whether it's, you know, minor. Anywhere in the world. Yeah, anywhere in <laughs> the world. From anywhere. Yeah, and we'll talk about those kinds, because I knew that Ellen was going to be like, what's the shape of the equipment? How does it work? So I had to make sure that I was prepared. 
I ask all the questions that everybody wants to know. I think. <laughs> the people Maybe. demand to know. To know. That's what I want to know, at least. I was going to slam my desk with my fist, but I didn't want to shake my microphone because it would destroy it. everybody's ears. So Me especially. Yes. So faults. Faults are locked in place normally. They okay. normally stay as they are because they're confined by pressure from overlaying rocks. So most faults we don't see above ground. You can see them. But most of the faults that we have are actually below the surface. Okay. So you don't see them. And because of that, the overlying rock that's like on top at the surface presses down on them and doesn't allow them to move. Hmm. So that's the majority of them. But most earthquakes are actually caused by sudden movements along these faults. Mm-hmm. However, I will, I will clarify that most faults are inactive. So they're basically just evidence of previous activity that was there. Examples of this are any of the faults that are along North America's East coast, because mm-hmm. it's a passive plate margin. They're not actively being shoved around anymore. They're just mm-hmm. there. That doesn't mean that you can't get activity from them. It just means that they're not actively being created and changed. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, so what, what about the Pacific? The Pacific is very active. <laughs> and in fact, the majority <laughs> of your earthquake activity occurs around the ring of fire, which Pacific we've talked Rim. about before, uh, which is an area around it's the entire Pacific Ocean where the Pacific plate is being subducted under multiple other plates that mm-hmm. are surrounding it. So that's unsurprisingly where you get most of your volcanic activity <laughs> and most of your earthquake activity. I was about to say, so wait, is there a trench somewhere where it's pulling apart if it's all being subducted? <laughs> yes, on the other side of the world, Ellen. No, well, there's the Marianas Trench. Isn't that where it's pulling apart? <laughs> there's also the Marianas Trench, yes. Yeah, and the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, I yeah. guess. Yes. While anyway. that is pushing itself apart, the Pacific is pushing itself, pulling itself together. Yeah. Wait. Because we're building another oh, supercontinent. Oh, because yeah, yeah, we're okay. building another supercontinent. In the middle of the Yeah, Atlantic where the Pacific Ocean. is going away. <gasps> Maybe someday we'll be closer to Japan. Maybe, one day we will be on top. We will have smooshed into Japan. <laughs> It'll be a much shorter flight to get to Japan. Millions and millions of years from now. I mean, don't crush my dreams, but (laughs) you're correct. Cryogenic freezing will be available by then. Who knows? Maybe we'll have all sorts of things by that point. We'll all be gone by that point. We'll be gone for sure. All the humans will be gone by that point. There'll be some sort of super race of new type of humans. Yeah. Crushed us all. Anyway. We'll become superhumans. So there are other, as we mentioned before, there are other things that can cause earthquakes besides faults. So atomic explosions are an example that can cause earthquakes. Volcanic eruptions can cause earthquakes. Were there earthquakes after, like, Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Really? Yes. Were there earthquakes after all the testing that was done? Yes. Really? Yes. All of the testing that was out west, there are definitely earthquakes that were occurring because of the testing. Wow. I mean, I'm not surprised, but I'm kind of surprised. I'm not surprised, but I'm slightly surprised. Yes. I'm not surprised, but, but I didn't know. I guess that makes they're, sense. They're an equivalent, except it's like a surface-forming earthquake rather than a subsurface one. Cool. And by <laughs> cool, I mean terrible. Yeah, it is pretty terrible. Yeah. But, so these types of explosions, though, are actually relatively infrequent and weak compared to fault movements, surprisingly. Yeah. This may be shocking to you, but... No, it's not that shocking to me. Atomic because... eruptions are nothing compared to a fault Well, because there's so much shifting. more pressure. Like, yeah. if you're dropping something on the surface of the Earth... If pressure is if the pressure is being released in three dimensions, some of it's going up into the air, right? Like, yes. you're, so you're already losing from that. Yeah, you lose. And then the, the material is less compacted, and 
yeah anyway there's there's less there there's going to be less of an impact i would say I would and we did we did kind of tease this but the even inactive faults can actually rupture under stress mm -hmm. So an example of this was one that both Ellen and I lived through, which was the Mineral <laughs> Virginia earthquake. Lived through like as if it was intense. It wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> it yeah, it was deal. in August of 2011. Yeah. And it was a 5.8. So on the... Nothing to stick at, actually. Yeah. Um, in the moment magnitude scale, it was a 5.8, which we'll talk about what that means later. Mm -hmm. And the thing about it that was interesting is actually it could be felt all the way up the even though it was virginia was where it was occurring it could felt be felt all the way up into canada like thousands of miles away it could be felt up into canada mm -hmm. and which is incredible because most earthquakes don't aren't felt that far away you know mm -hmm. the thing is that the types of sediment this is why it's so it comes into play it's so important to know the types of sediment you have the types of confining pressure you have and stuff like that the types of sediment that you have in the eastern united states are much more compacted than the types of sediments you have in the western United States or the southern United States mm. because they are remnants of the Appalachian mountain belt. So it's mm. the that orogeny, the taconic orogeny, which we'll talk about. It's fine. But anyway. I mean, because they were smushed together in the past. Yes. They're <laughs> more you. compact now. Yes. That's what you're saying. Yes. Okay. So because of that, the waves from the earthquake can travel farther and faster. Okay. Because the sediment's all closer to each other. If you have more loosely cobbled together sediments the energy peters out faster because it's it's harder to move loose sediments than it is yeah. to move through quick sediments the energy can't be transferred from particle there's less lost from it because if the particles are closer together yes they actually are hitting each other yes. with greater force yeah okay yes but yeah so that's why and the cool. thing is that other excuse me we were pretty far away from the epicenter too like i was in maryland at the time yeah <laughs> and it was pretty far and I was deeply upset because I was at home, but we had a a bathroom at that house that had an outer door and an inner door. And the outer door opened up into the hallway and then into like a room with two sinks. And then the inner door closed and opened up to like the toilet and the shower. Uh -huh. So I had just gone in to take a shower. Okay. And I had the <laughs> inner door open to the bathroom uh -huh. and the outer door closed. Yeah. So the shower was running and... I, I don't remember what I was doing, but I I turned to look at the outer door and I saw that it was violently shaking. Really? In the door oh. frame, and I was you like, "You never told me this before." Yeah, I was like, "What the heck?" And I was like, "Did mom put too many clothes in the washer and overbalance the washer?" <laughs> so I actually literally walked up to the door and I put my hand on it. And I could feel the vibrations going through it. Now I didn't hear anything. So like normally, this was when... before you studied. No, you were in no, the I was in, studying I was in school. Geology. Yeah, I was in school at the time. Yes. This is why I was deeply upset about it. So there was a, <laughs> there was, I didn't feel anything under my feet and I couldn't hear anything because the water was running. Right. Mom says, mom says she was downstairs. She said she heard a train. She said I it heard sounded a like a train coming through. I'll tell like you what I heard after train. you finish your story. Yeah. And I am deeply upset because I did not hear it. And I wish I had heard it. And it's upsetting to me because it's so unlikely that we'll have another, we would have had another earthquake in Virginia. It's deeply upsetting to me. But yeah, I it's okay. Over. You got to experience another earthquake somewhere else, which I'm oh, sure we'll, we'll talk, talk about, about later. Yes. So, but yeah, I, I, I put my hand up to the door and I was like, what the heck is going on here? And then I put my hand to the door and it's like shake, shake, shake. And then it kind of like slowed down and then it was like still. And I was like, well, it's weird. And then I just take my shower and then I come out 
and then I get dressed and I come downstairs and mom was like, did you feel that earthquake? And I was like, <laughs> I was so te- mad. I was so mad. Technically you did feel it because you felt the door. Well, so. and also, and also my professor, I feel, I feel slightly better because my professor was telling me that she was out like on a boat and so she didn't feel anything at all and she was also she's my geology professor she was Deeply so upset, upset. yes because <laughs> it's so rare to have them on the east coast of the united states because i said yeah. it's a passive plate margin right and the only time you get it is when you have ancient faults like this because these are ancient faults this fault was created in during the appalachian creation of the appalachian orogeny orogeny and then it was kind of reactivated when pangea broke up so there was mm-hmm. still some like movement but nothing has happened since then. Yep. And it just happened to go. It just happened to just, it was too whatever. much stress. What it was did, under wait, too much was, stress. It was 2011. Yeah, it was 2011. August okay. 2011. Too much stress and it just snapped and it was just done with all these people. And mm-hmm. so it was deeply upsetting. And the other thing is, and I'll let Ellen tell her story too, but it actually <laughs> caused another indication of how far it spread. It actually caused landslides 150 miles away. Wow. 150 miles from Where? the epicenter. And, in Pennsylvania? Or the, where is that? I don't know. Like, from, where are you talking about? I can't you remember where, which direction. Yeah, I know it was 150 okay. miles away. I can't remember exactly which direction it went in, but that's actually the farthest recorded really landslide wow. for that intensity, which is a 5.8. Wow. And it's because the sediments are so close together. It's because the rocks are so compacted. Anyway, I Ellen, I want you to tell I, your story. It's just very funny because I'm, I'm also laughing because when, when this happened, everybody in the world who lives in places where there are normally earthquakes was like, look at these dum-dums, like, <laughs> freaking out about this earthquake. It was only 5.8. The best part was there were so many pictures of people from, like, Twitter and stuff where there was just a lawn chair that fell over in their yard. Yes. It was so good. <laughs> Mineral Virginia earthquake damage. Yeah. 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 Um. Yeah. No. So I was working at in Maryland at the time. I was working in the University of Maryland, which is a very old university. So I was in like an ancient walk up like building and we were so I was sitting at my desk um, doing my thing as an intern, whatever I was doing. And I heard a noise that sounded like when you hear somebody, what I thought it was is that somebody was like moving something on like a rolling like a um, cart, like where they were moving something heavy. Dad said the same thing. And I was like, Oh, they're just moving something upstairs. And then I was like, oh, wait, this is the top floor. And then right as soon as I thought that, the building started shaking. And it was the weirdest sensation. It was like being in a boat, but on land. Yeah. So it wasn't just like a vibration. It was like, I think maybe it vibrated a little bit. And then it was like rocking. Yeah. Like a like being on a boat. Yeah, we it was were gonna, very I'm going to talk I'm going to talk about that yeah. too. So that was interesting. One of my coworkers was freaking out and we were like, dude, like chill. <laughs> everything is gonna be fine it's just an earthquake but yeah it was really bizarre it was very strange there was at least we didn't like run outside which you're not supposed to do in an earthquake yeah like, i mean you could you know if you're in the middle of a field the, the earthquake's gonna do nothing to you except for where the ground like opens up like i've seen those horrifying photos of like people time. in a park in japan and yeah an earthquake i'm gonna talk i was gonna talk about that i was gonna oh, talk about freaks, that that but, freaks me out i'd rather be inside i'll hide under a table or in a doorway it's fine yeah um, until the building collapses on you yeah that was something that was very concerning because obviously like you said none of the buildings in that area have any we do have for... we do have earthquake restrictions actually in in that area in, because in that area. but because it's a possibility it's just that yeah the thing is i mean i was when, in an old building i'm sure yeah. it didn't have any of that so <laughs> which, I mean, have, which is why i think it maybe wiggled a lot but this is getting know. into kind of a different topic but when we yeah. do <laughs> hazard management in geology and in other areas a lot of times it's you're doing mitigation of risk so you have to define what your risk mm. is and so if the risk is low 
you don't want to spend a ton of money making completely earthquake proof buildings, you know, in Virginia when it's unlikely that you'll have a There's never earthquake. Gonna be, not never, but it's very unlikely for us to be in, involved in another earthquake in that area again. I and think it's, in our if we ever had a 9.0, I would <laughs> eat a hat. I don't think that would ever happen. <laughs> but, you know, not not until if we had a night. Yeah, no, I no. can't even imagine it. But yeah, there anyway. was there was some damage that occurred. So the National Cathedral was damaged. Yes, the National Cathedral, um, the Ecuador Embassy in D.C., Washington D.C., the National Monument, aka the National Pencil, that's in Washington D.C. <laughs> the Great um, Obelisk. One of the other things that was interesting is that D.C. zookeepers were actually they reported that several of the animals started to act strange. Mm. Some of them seconds, and then some of them minutes before the earthquake was felt. Interesting. And the thing is that they say that that animals can tell. Yes. So specifically, the apes apparently were in the middle of feeding, and then they just immediately all hightailed it into a tree, into like a structure inside of a tree. Wow. And the red rough lemurs started <laughs> lemurs. giving it like 15 minutes before the they started alarm calling. About mm. 15 minutes before the earthquake hit. Weird. And even the flamingos. There was like a group of flamingos. They all clustered together and like hid oh, flamingos in a group. Um. So yeah, and then several of the animals were agitated for the rest of the day after the earthquake well there's still aftershocks and stuff technically yeah. right i mean we didn't really feel it as peoples as but humans, i did but... want to point out the giant pandas did not appear to care <laughs> one way or another <laughs> our our listeners don't know this yet but jane hates pandas <laughs> <laughs> and i just one more thing to add to the list of why pandas are terrible <laughs> just useless <laughs> absolutely useless Jane, i anyway. don't want to get you in trouble with our listeners in our sixth episode for your hatred of pandas but it's, oh gosh we'll save that she stands for, by it oh god we'll save that for another episode it's pandas a whole are terrible rant. i could <laughs> i could absolutely make a multi-episode podcast about why pandas are terrible but yeah just as soon as i told ellen earlier i was doing some i was writing up some notes and i told ellen oh, like, i started yeah i started laughing really hard and i was like i'll tell you during the podcast so i can That's get a great. genuine reaction <laughs> That is exactly what it was, because I was like, Ellen's going to laugh really hard when she My reaction six. was genuine. Yes. That is true. So, yeah, we have... So, that's our, that's our that was our first earthquake experience. Gen- our, you know... We've had... Again, not very special, it was I not. guess. We've had multiple. Um, I think it is special because it happens so rarely. Yeah. I'll stick with that. No, I agree with you. I think that we'll save... I guess... Oh, I could Let's add one more... Next... I could oh. tell one more story about that, which is that my husband... Uh, so I live in Canada now. At the time, I was living in Virginia. But my husband, who was also living in Canada at the time, he said... So this was... Uh, he was. We live in the Toronto area. I guess I can say that. Um, but he said he was working at his desk in his internship because we were both doing internships because we were students. And he said his chair started to move. <laughs> like, that's the amount of... And he was working in a very tall building at the time, actually. I think he's up pretty high. So Yeah, the taller it is, the more you would feel it. Yeah, I think he might sway. have been actually. Uh, I think recently he told me it reminded me that it wasn't that high up, but it wasn't a tall building, so it was a somewhat high, higher than where we were. You were on the ground basically, essentially, yeah. <laughs> on the second floor. I was on like the fourth floor, I guess, of the building I was in, and uh, he was probably on the sixth or seventh floor, so not too super high. But yeah, he said he felt his chair move roll away, and he was like, "What?" That was his experience. In <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was just it was a really interesting earthquake because it, it actually yeah. provided a lot of research for geologists because it was it had spread so far, like unexpectedly far. And the amount of people who could have felt it, it also was higher than they expected it to. So it was just interesting. But 
Yes. All right. Uh, we'll cool. get back. We'll get back to the science. Let's talk here. about other interesting, more <laughs> yes. interesting and horrifying earthquakes. The yes. mineral earthquake. I think it's nice that we have this experience because nothing awful happened. Yes. Just a couple buildings had to be repaired. Nobody got hurt. There was a couple gargoyles that needed their faces <laughs> fell, fixed. Fell off, things fell off the National Cathedral, but everything was fine in the there end. Were, I do feel bad there were some people near Mineral whose foundations on their homes were ruined, which kind of oh, that's stinks a because they're so expensive. Um, but And I feel yeah. really bad. And then some people also with their chimneys, the flues in their chimneys were broken. That's and those true. are really expensive too. But unfortunately, it just yeah, is so. what it is. So. But nobody died. After that like... though, after that though, my grandmother, our grandmother got earthquake insurance but let me tell you her <laughs> she earthquake was like closer insurance, to mineral than we did yeah she does but our, her earthquake insurance also included get this volcano insurance nice so she has volcano insurance in virginia <laughs> where there are no there's volcanoes. no active volcanoes in virginia. <laughs> i mean i guess it's just blanket it's probably like a national insurance it is. i'm sure it is but yeah but i mean it, it would it would cover in case she ever if she had a foundation an unfortunate incident from a yeah. volcano yeah, okay. but I just I thought that was very amusing. It we is all amusing. we all thought it was very amusing that she got combined earthquake volcano insurance in anyway, Virginia. But our personal, our personal Virginia story. Yeah, we'll probably there's another story that we'll talk about, but maybe we'll save it for a little bit farther on. Yeah. But okay, so so tectonic forces very slowly deform the crustal rocks on both sides of a fault, and these. I feel like I just jumped right into it, but it's true. It's these forces kind of make the rocks bend and store energy elastically and then when there's what's really holding them in place is friction and once the amount of shoving that's happening has overcome yeah, friction the frictional friction. resistance that's when you get your elastic rebound okay which is the force that creates these earthquakes okay and any of this displacement that occurs will actually it doesn't just stop at the one spot that the fault felt the stress. It actually moves that stress farther up the fault. So that's why you get, a lot of times you'll get more than one earthquake from the same areas because it's, even though one place elastically released its stress doesn't mean that other parts along the fault still have stress mm -hmm. that have been built up or even build up further because it's because of it. building more and more stress to, to, towards one spot on the fault. Hmm. Okay. So you get additional slippage and you get, um, more strain that's built up and then yeah because like one part moves so then there's more differential pressure on a different part of the yes of the fault there so yeah be. you get your elastic rebound there it's not like the whole thing just like released at one time like these are multiple areas uh, could be especially in like the san andreas fault where it's gigantic right so yes so the the diagram that they had in my book was again with like a pencil so you start with your original position if you're holding a pencil between two hands and it's just mm -hmm. flat and then you build up strain by like bending the pencil slowly upward Mm -hmm. And you start to see a bend in your pencil, and that's the storing of your elastic energy. Mm -hmm. And then you have slippage, so that's when you have pushed your pencil beyond the point that it can contain that energy and snaps. Mm -hmm. So that's your slippage, and that's when your earthquake occurs. Mm -hmm. And then the strain is released through that process. Okay. And then with earthquakes, we also have things called foreshocks and aftershocks. So can you guess which one happens before a shake and which one happens at the end of a shake? Well, I would have to say that for a foreshock would be before and an aftershock would be after. Yeah, foreshocks occur, they can actually occur days to years before proceeding Well, yeah, because it's like from the tension or the pressure that's building up, right? Or the, the friction, the force of friction that's continuing to build up, right? Yes. And seismologists, which are scientists that study earthquakes, they can use these foreshocks to actually predict when a major earthquake will occur, which is very wow. helpful. 
And then after shocks are the adjustment. The rock is still getting comfortable again. And so you'll get more shocks. They're usually weaker than the major earthquake that occurred, but sometimes they actually are the the death toll for a building because it was already damaged by the first major earthquake. Mm-hmm. And then aftershocks continue to shake it until it finally just can't take it anymore mm-hmm. and then it's destroyed. Mm-hmm. So we have seismology, the study of the earthquake waves. Which and said, yes. seismographs are the tools that we use to record seismic waves. Cool. Uh, again, scientists are not – geologists in particular use – very easy terms <laughs> to describe things sometimes. Yes. Um, so this technology of seismology was actually discovered in ancient China. So they actually oh. had this way before we did. And there's this really cool device. They had That's a picture cool. of it in my my book, which was basically like a – it kind of looks like a – it looks like a pot with a lid. Okay. Okay. It's kind of like a like a normal-shaped pot like a, with rounded edges you know, and um, you're talking lid. about like a Grecian style pot where it's like yeah, kind of a... like an urn. Yeah. Yeah. Like a vase or something. Yeah. Not like a cooking pot. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. More like, like an urn shape, you know. Yeah. Like a and, plant pot. And yeah. this, this, it's a vessel and it looks like it's like gold plated. Fancy. And the top in the lid, they had a kind of like a pendulum dangling from the center of the lid. Mm-hmm. So like a, an, a weight dangling from the center of the lid and around the outside, equally spaced around the outside of the the pot there were these dragon figures that are facing downwards so they're facing downwards with their mouths open okay like meh you know okay yes um and there's like there's like eight of them so it's like the cardinal directions all the different so like north south east west northwest east west blah 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 but so inside of the mouths of these dragons there would be little metal balls below the dragons with these little frogs that would sit on the table and they would have their mouths pointing upward and they would have their mouths open and be like, ah. Okay. So what would happen is this little pendulum that was inside of this hollow jar, when there was a, a earthquake, the pendulum would react to the waves and nudge one of the metal balls out of the dragon's mouth into the frog's mouth. And so you would see the direction the wave had come from because it would knock it out into the it would hit the ball. It would hit the metal ball out of the dragon's mouth into the frog's mouth. And so you could see how it's collected. It was really cool. We'll have to, maybe we'll have to post a picture. It's kind of hard to imagine. But yeah, the relative motion of the suspended mass would dislodge these metal balls into the waiting mouths of the frogs below. And it would help them to determine the direction that the earthquakes had come from. Cool. So unfortunately, nowadays, we don't actually use that anymore we use the seismograph which <laughs> unfortunately is really cool. yeah i guess because it's pretty i cool. mean like dragon mouse like i would love to have dragon mouse so today we have seismographs so they have okay. a mass that's freely suspended from a support and the support is attached to the ground so when there's vibration from an earthquake and it reaches the instrument the inertia which is the 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 thing that keeps the mass in place you know, mm-hmm. the thing that keeps us all in place where we're not, when we're not putting, applying force to ourselves, we're staying steady and that's inertia. Yes. So the inertia of the, ma- the, excuse me, the inertia of the mass keeps it relatively steady mm-hmm. while the earth and the support move around the mass. So the movement of the earth relative to the stationary mass is what is recorded on, it's a, it's a rotating cylinder of magnetic tape. So basically what happens is like the, the, ma- the mass has a little pin attached to the bottom of it that's touching this magnetic tape and when the earth moves the cylinder stays where it is 
the mass with the pin attached to it stays where it is, but the earth, the earth moves around it. Okay, so there's a suspended, there's a suspended mass. There's a yes. needle that's attached. Yes. The basically the needle's attached to the mass. The mass stays. Yes. Because of its own inertia, as you yes. said. But the it cylinder. It just floats there. It just the floats cylinder, there. Yeah, and the like cylinder the and the ground. Recording move. cylinder. Like the ground. The cylinder is sitting on a table. Like the cylinder is in a device that's sitting on a table that's on the ground, right? Like that cylinder shifts, but the hanging mass stays the same. Yes. It stays in the same position. Yes. That's interesting because I always thought it was the other way around. I always thought it was that thing was like swinging. But I mean, no. that makes sense because it's like it's suspended in the air. So. Yeah. If it could okay. fly, it would be flying. <laughs> if it could like float, it would be floating. It's as close, it's as close to being floating as possible without. Yeah you know flying. some sort of magnets or something to keep <laughs> okay. it floating but cool. yes so the that makes the sense mass doesn't move. It. yeah it's it's interesting to think about because it's kind of an opposite we kind of think of you know ourselves moving not the earth moving right us you know what i mean so that's that's what's happening there is that the earth is moving the table which is moving the cylinder that's on the table mm-hmm. and then the mass is just sitting there like what up yeah so pretty much it records for us mm, so earthquakes actually cause vertical and horizontal displacement it's not just you know, we're, we're mm-hmm. having effects in 3D space. It's not just one or the other. And That's why because it feels of that, like a wave, right? Yeah. Because of that, you actually need multiple types of seismographs to get the entire oh. picture of what's going on. So there's horizontal seismographs and there's vertical seismographs. The vortical seismographs are created when you have a mass that's suspended on a spring. So it can get an upward, up and down kind of motion. Mm. And then... What we do for the horizontal ones is that you have a mass that's suspended parallel to the ground, which is like the classic pendulum that I was telling you about. Yeah, it looks, what it's they probably do, the type that you're imagining when you think of a seismograph, if you think about it. Yeah. So what they do is they get two of those. They get one and orient it north-south, and they get one that orient it east-west. Okay. So you get direction. You get to get recording in all different directions. Okay. And then the vertical one, again, is a, a mass attached to a spring. So it's upward and downward motion. Gives you an idea of what kind of vertical displacement you have. Yeah, it, uh, I'm looking at a diagram. It looks like this: the cylinder, the recording cylinder, is to the side of it, so it hangs there, and then the needles touch, like pokes it, it. <laughs> sideways, as opposed to on top, which is what I always imagined a cylinder, uh, seismograph looks like. And some of these instruments are actually super, super sensitive because they're designed to be pick it, picked up, shaking from earthquakes that are actually on the opposite side of the world. Mm-hmm. And then there are other ones that are built super sturdy may or may not be near somewhere like the San Andreas Vault where <laughs> they expect major shakes to, to major... occur. Yeah, so okay. you don't want it to be super sensitive because you'll just constantly pick up, you know, background. I'm seeing the seismograph. The, sorry, the there's a photo of the ancient Chinese one. Oh, isn't it cool with the dragons on it's it? It's really cool. And the little frogs are like at the bottom. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Sorry, you should post that in our, our social media. It's really cool. I love it. I just Googled seismograph and that was in the results. Yeah. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Please. Seismograms <laughs> are the recordings that come from these instruments. And what they show is they show there are major types of waves. And there are two major types of waves, specifically for seismic waves. We have surface waves and we have body waves. And we've, okay. we've talked about this before because we talked about it with the core of the Earth. Mm-hmm. So, again, body waves can be broken down further into primary or P waves and secondary or S waves. Mm-hmm. Primary waves travel faster. We've mentioned this before. They go but, through liquid. No, they don't go yes. through liquid. Yep. Okay, they, they go, go, they're the they ones go that through go everything. Through they mm-hmm. go through everything. Primary waves are compression waves, which is okay. the same kind of waves that you get when you are producing sound. So our throats and the way that we use our voice box to speak 
were vibrating air molecules that are mm-hmm. shoving against each other and then it's traveling to someone else's ear and then they hear ear. it yes and then yes. it shakes and it vibrates <laughs> shoving so, stuff inside your ear that's what sound is in case if you, you didn't if know. you want to <laughs> see if you physically want to see what a compression wave looks like you should play with a slinky because if you have a slinky and you're holding yeah. one end and you're holding the other end if you shove your hand towards the other hand it will force a wave down the length of your slinky and you'll see it mm-hmm. um and then it'll have kind of like a bounce back like a reverb kind of effect so that's a compressional that's an area wave. that's compressed yeah. yeah so that's a compressional wave versus secondary waves which are they travel slower mm-hmm. and they are transverse waves they're the ones that look like your classic sine waves you know they have like that up and down wave. wiggle so if you have like a, a jump rope and you shake it up and down you'll see transverse waves mm-hmm. they'll be up and down kind of wiggles and this is the way that light travels it travels as a you know an up and down they also travels as a particle but that's unrelated so they're the they're the shake waves they Wrong move podcast. particles at right angles to the direction that they're traveling in which is okay again that side wa- sine wave that we expect to see okay and they what they do is they actually temporarily change the shape of the material that they're traveling through when they're oh. forcing themselves through solids or whatever and since fluids meaning liquids and gases don't respond to elastic changes like that when in in terms of shape mm-hmm. that's why s waves can't go through them oh okay they don't respond to that but are those the ones that you feel that are like no we evoke? feel surface waves oh okay so, so we have surface that, sorry. surface yes. waves no you're fine surface waves travel along the ground mm-hmm. and causing they cause anything or anyone that are along these this group of waves to move and there's two different kinds of major motion you get from surface waves Mm -hmm. you either get side to side motion which is kind of a horizontal version of an s wave you can imagine like a snake does like a sidewinder kind of motion Mm -hmm. you get that kind of snake horizontal motion those are incredibly damaging to the foundations of buildings you get a Mm -hmm. lot of subsurface issues with those kinds of waves now the type that ellen's talking about (laughs) is being like a ship in an ocean so yes. you get this kind of up down kind of rolling motion that's similar yeah. to to wave action that you get and this is the kind of motion that knocks things down because mm-hmm. the ground was not meant to move like that up and down yeah. <laughs> it's not meant to move and it's not even that it's up and down it's like a rolling motion it's, it's yeah like a, it is like being in a, a boat like if you've ever been in a situation where you've been on a boat it's like a it's not just straight up and down it's uh I don't know. Yeah, it's like a more... How can you describe this if you've never been in a boat? It's like being in a boat. It is. It is exactly <laughs> like being in a boat. That's the only other way to describe it. It's like being in water that you have waves action occurring. There's no other way to describe it. It is what it's, it is. It's not straight up and down. It's more like moving. It's a rolling like, motion. It yeah. has like a It has like a clockwork kind of... Like a clockwise or a counterclockwise kind of motion where you which have is... undulating waves on the ground, which is kind of bizarre to think about a solid surface moving like that. But it's kind of why, that's why, like, if you're higher up in a building, you're more likely to feel it, too, because the top part is going to move more. It gets amplified more by it. It's good, like, a rolling sort of motion, right? Yes. You feel the building tilting more the farther away it gets from, like, the ground, I guess. Yes. And we have, when we were, Ellen and I, time for story time now. Ellen and I were More story time. Second story time. Ellen and I were in Japan. We were in Japan. 2018. Yeah, 2018 in March. And while we were there... Uh, I was sleeping in our our location that we were staying at, and I was on the third floor. Ellen was in down, Tokyo. Yeah, in we were Tokyo. in Tokyo. Ellen was down on the in first a house. floor. It was yes. a like three story house in Tokyo because yes. we were staying in an Airbnb. Yeah, we were in, a lot of us traveling. We were in Ikebukuro. Yeah. Yes. 
and northwestern Tokyo. Yes, and not that it matters much because this is such a huge scale. But yes, you're in Tokyo. So I was I was in the third floor, and I was first of all I wake up to sirens. Yeah, and I was mildly concerned about that, and it was like I don't know six in the morning something Something Tokyo time, Tokyo time, and which is you know means nothing to me in my current time zone. But yeah, it was like six in the morning Tokyo time. And I wake up to these sirens and I'm like, that's a little weird. I wonder what that's about. Like, did someone, and I hear, you know, speaking in Japanese over the sirens, which is, you know, a warning clearly. And I was like, did someone like get kidnapped or something? Because we have those Amber Alerts here in the yeah. States. And I was like, what, you know, um, now I live in a state that has tornado sirens. So I'm very familiar with that kind of siren now. But at the time I was not familiar with hearing random sirens while I was sleeping. So I was like, oh, okay, what's this? But and it's not the it's not like a police noise no siren it was, it's like the it's clearly like a warning yeah it's clearly like a warning siren and i was like that's bizarre and so i kind of stayed up and listened to it and i was like hmm okay and so i just sat there for a little bit and then all of a sudden i just the building we're in starts to sway and i was like <laughs> i don't know about this like this is a yeah. weird being on the third floor made it a lot more significant than if we were in the first floor which yeah, I, I didn't Ellen wake up to. this is the opposite of jane's story about the mineral earthquake where i was on the first floor and everybody when we got up in the morning all our friends who we were traveling was like do you guys feel that earthquake in the like in the middle of the night how about that earthquake and me and my husband who were sleeping on the first floor were like what are you even talking about yeah because so we had the group that was we with didn't us, wake up at all i didn't hear yeah. the sirens or anything so. yeah the group that was with us me and one of the other girls were on the, the third floor and then the other people were on the second floor no, they were. You no, they were. were, on they the were we floor. were all on the third floor. Yeah, you were. All, we yeah. were all on the third floor. The and house so, kind yeah. of, it was kind of split where there was like a bedroom on the first floor and a bathroom, it's and like then a like a living room, and then on the top floor it was the two the other bedrooms. bedrooms and another bathroom. But yeah, we we were there. We were up yeah. there. And... All the people who felt it were on the top floor. Yeah, we were on the top That's floor. So happened. the thing is, like, when it happened, we were all like, uh, we all were like, we came running out of our rooms in our pajamas and was like, did you feel that? Did you feel that? <laughs> and like Ellen and Mike weren't there, and we were like, uh, and so later that day we were like. Did you feel that? And they're like, no. No. And we were like, oh my gosh, it was so exciting. I know. And I was like, I'm so jealous. I wanted to feel the earthquake in Japan. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, like, I'm not that jealous because earthquakes can be so much worse is, in Japan. It was kind of shocking how how much I felt the movement for how minimal of an earthquake that was and how far away it was because it was you way offshore. The, what was the magnitude on that? I can't remember. It was way offshore, though. I think it was, it was not... also like around a five ish something. Yes. So, so kind of like that mineral earthquake. But, but yeah, it was way far on the, away. On the scale of what it feels like, I would look that up later. Like while I was in Japan, I looked up the because mm. USGS and a couple of other places list the feels like magnitude for mm. your location based on the distance you were from the earthquake. And it was mm. a feels like in Tokyo of like a one. Okay. So it was kind of interesting to me that I felt that as a one. And I'm like, what would it have felt like if it had been a five, you know, when I, I was in know. Tokyo? It would have been really dramatic because that but, was like it felt like a very gently swaying boat at a dock. That's what it felt like. <laughs> felt like we were docked at the shore Maybe. and just gently swaying. Do you think that's because of the construction of the house and stuff too? I mean, or... the they're built to last in Tokyo because yeah. they know that there's problems with earthquakes. Right. So they're built to withstand a lot of shaking before they come down. Because Japan has had this for forever, even a lot of their like traditional building materials and stuff withstand can withstand earthquakes not all of Pretty them well. a lot of the damage that they have in earthquakes at least in like ancient japan were because of fires right it wasn't necessarily because of the buildings toppling it doesn't mean that people buildings don't get crumbled or get destroyed but mm -hmm. um 
they they do a pretty good job of maintaining. Well, there's there's the other problems that come yeah. from along with earthquakes that Japan has specifically. Yes, yes, we'll talk about those too. But yeah, but anyway, so that was our and yeah the, story the, number two. So... Yeah, the best thing about that though was when we went to take the train later, the subway. The next yeah, morning. we took the subway that morning. It had later a in the morning. There was a sign up that was like, "We apologize for the delay," and it was like a two, a two minute, minute delay. delay? <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. It was like a two minute delay, and it said "delay cause earthquake", earthquake. <laughs> on the sign. <laughs> it was so, so good. Maybe they paused the service during the earthquake. That's probably what they. I did, think they. Actually. I think that's what they did, and I think that's why they had to delay after that. Yeah. But yeah, anyway. the, the earthquake didn't last that long. It only lasted like a couple, like a minute, maybe. It was not that long. That but you could feel, yeah. Yeah, but yes. So they they had a sign up that was in the most effusive, polite Japanese I'd ever seen in my life. That was like we sincerely apologize for the delay in service, <laughs> blah blah. It was like the most Japanese thing I've ever seen because it was so sincerely apologetic and like this extremely is just our perspective humble. of not being not living in North America where where uh... where sometimes trains just don't show up. <laughs> <laughs> they sometimes they just don't show up. So that's why I was really shocked about it. Or like living... there's a like three hour delay and they're like whatever yeah. deal with it. So the way that we can figure out where the earthquake actually happened, where the hmm. the focus was and the epicenter the epicenter being the surface po point that mm. this focus oh so the is focus at. is below ground and the yeah, epicenter is above ground i had that in my notes i guess i skipped it so a focus is below ground where the actual origin of your earthquake is and then the epicenter is the point on the surface where your earthquake like, like directly from. above the focus mm. if that makes sense okay there's several ways that you can calculate them but we actually were able to calculate in class. We're able to do labs where we figure out where a earthquake's focus and epicenter are. Mm -hmm. And you can do that as long as you know the location of three seismographs and oh. you get the information from them, which is the P and the S waves. You need to know how fast they got to you. Okay. And you also need to know the distance from each of the three locations that you're using to triangulate where your epicenter actually mm. is. Yeah, because they would because it moves at the same speed, I guess, right? Yes, in all directions. In all so directions. you can so you can do a rough estimate. The thing is like again, you know, it travels differently well, through it's, different it's also like materials, underground, but... like you can't I don't know, you can't actually know like for sure with 100% certainty. I mean, like... you can if your seismograph is right next to it. But you <laughs> you can get you can get within you know I'm sure you can get close enough within the cup, like a mile or two. Like it's not, mm -hmm. you can get a really, a very close to accurate just by hand doing this, like Interesting. by hand calculating where your, your epicenter is. But yeah, it's a simple thing. We do it in the lab. It's really cool. Um, and we've mentioned this before, but most earthquakes actually occur around the Pacific ring of fire mm -hmm. and there, but there are earthquakes all over the world. You know, there was an earthquake just last week that was in Turkey. Mm -hmm. So, in Greece. It was, it was based out of Greece, but Turkey felt it too. 95% of earthquakes that occur on Earth actually occur in these various earthquake belts hmm. that are around the Pacific. Mm -hmm. But the, the earthquake belts also extend up into the Philippines and Myanmar. There's another belt right there, so there's a lot of earthquakes there too. The other thing that's important to know is that earthquakes... Depending on how deep their focus is, it can actually change how strong an earthquake is. So mm. the more shallow an earthquake is, generally that's a stronger earthquake. Mm. It, I mean, there are other factors to, that to change that, but that's a very general rule of thumb is that 
and the focus depths have been measured from five to 700 kilometers. So wow. five kilometers being the shortest, like that's really close to the surface. So of course, mm -hmm. if you have a really strong earthquake, it's going to rattle your bones. Like everything's <laughs> going to be rattled with that. Yeah. But, but 700. It's really deep. It's like a princess of the pea situation. <laughs> exactly. So how do we measure the strength of earthquakes? We mentioned earlier what we mentioned earlier, some numbers, we threw out some numbers, you know, we were saying some things, but when we measure earthquakes, we actually measure, there's two different kind of qualities we like to measure. And one of them is intensity and one of them is magnitude. So okay. intensity is actually the degree of shaking at a given locale based on the amount of damage. So, so that's what you were saying, like in Tokyo at the time of the earthquake that we were talking about in March, not in March, yeah, March, in March, 2018. If the intensity was a one, like that a one? no, that was just oh. the feels like magnitude okay, from a distance, which different. we'll we'll talk about later. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah, it's like the feels like weather. So intensity, <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, that's basically yeah. what it's like. Intensity okay. is a scale that is measured with. It's called the modified Mercalli intensity scale, and it was actually developed in California to be used for building standards. Okay. So what it does is it tells you how much shaking is expected and how much damage. So it's more of a risk mm. assessment kind of scale than anything. Okay. But you it goes from one to 12, where okay. one being it's not felt except by under favorable circumstances. <laughs> and then 12 being damage total, waves seen on ground surface, objects thrown upwards in air. So that's, <laughs> it goes from, so that's the scale. Has it's that like, happened? Uh, I don't know if they have a 12 recorded on the modified intensity scale. I'm not sure wow. about that. It can happen. I'm sure it could. Yeah. I mean, it seems logical that it could. I mean, small objects for sure have absolutely thrown in the air. But if they're talking about like buildings, then unlikely. But yeah, small objects can absolutely be thrown in the air during earthquakes. I lost a book, Ellen. I had a book fall <laughs> off my bookshelf during our mineral earthquake. That's it was probably because it was vibrating, not because it was thrown in the air <laughs> off of the ground. Anyway, it's important. So... <laughs> Okay. But yeah, so that's that scale. Most I feel like most scientists don't really use that. It's more used for people who are doing like building code assessments, okay. stuff like that. And then we have magnitude. So magnitude is a calculation based on seismic records. So your seismographs to yep. estimate the amount of energy that's released at the source of the earthquake. Okay. So there's multiple different magnitude scales. One's kind of an old school one, which I know you've heard of. It's the Richter scale. Yes. That one's the one that was everybody was using for a really long time. And it's based on your amplitude, so your height of your largest seismic wave. Okay. So whether that was a P wave or an S wave or a surface wave, whatever was recorded at the height at the seismograph, or excuse me, seismogram, that mm. is what Maximum. is used to calculate your Richter scale, okay. your Richter mag magnitude. And it also has a method to account for the distance from the foci of okay. the earthquake to because there's every as you as you distance yourself there's a decrease in the wave amplitude right. so he uses a system to kind of like backwards compensate for that okay so that you get like a true amplitude measurement for okay. the focus of the earthquake so it's not perfect but it's it's a good scale and it, it uses distance time between your secondary wave and your p wave when they mm -hmm. arrived your secondary and your primary wave and the amplitude of the wave that's recorded in millimeters on the seismograph. Oh, so okay. a three on a Richter scale is is like felt by some. And then a 7.0 would be a major earthquake and it inflicted serious damage. And then it goes up to 10, but I don't think there's ever been a 10 that's been recorded in human history. Nines, I guess. Yeah. 
So the last type of scale I want to talk about is the moment magnitude scale. And this is the one that's the most, I think more scientists like it now for a lot mm -hmm. of reasons. It's more common, commonly used. So moment magnitude, what it does is it actually measures the earthquake's magnitude based on its seismic moment. Ooh. And a seismic moment is actually the work it did. Work okay. is force times distance. So however much force it applied over a distance and you okay. find the max of that and that would be your seismic moment. Okay. So it's a log scale. It's very similar to Richter in that way because Richter is also a log scale. And when you say log, you mean logarithmic. I yes, guess. logarithmic and when scale. When you say yes. logarithmic, Thank you, you Sorry. mean it uh, it's increases like exponentially increasing, yes. I guess. Yeah. Yes, in a log based fashion, but that's not you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's math. Most <laughs> most scientists use it now because it's much better for describing estimating large earthquakes, A. B, hmm. it can be derived using math, but not only that, but it's multiple ways you can describe it using math because you can measure this work done from the site of a rupture, like so where your epicenter was. Okay. You can measure the amount of movement that was there at the at the at the epicenter. And you can also that amount of displacement, you know, and you can also measure mm. the you also get your seismogram measurements too. So it's okay. there's a multiple measurement format to it, which a lot of scientists appreciate so they can double check their work. Mm. And it's just a better reflection of the total energy released by the earthquake rather than just the amount of shaking or whatever. Yeah. Know? Well, the amount of shaking has its uses, obviously, like for buildings. Like it, yes. they don't really care what's happening underground, you know, like necessarily. But that so they do. Space is different. So they do calculations based on energy. So how much energy, which is like a joule, you know, yep. we, we use the term for joule. It's that's the same work is measured in joules. It's measured in energy. Or a so watt. Yeah, or a yes. watt. That's one. Um, so to calculate a moment magnitude, which is the term for a seismic moment, um, it goes from zero to ten, same as Eight. our other scale, with a one or excuse me, with a zero being one pound of explosives of energy. That's the equivalent to one pound of explosives. Okay. A 10 is equivalent to the entire annual U.S. energy consumption. Whoa. <laughs> it's like <laughs> trillions of, of yeah. uh, joules of energy, you know, okay. watts. And the to put it into perspective, the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens was an 8.0 on the, wow. the moment magnitude scale. But versus it's also, a lightning it's logarithmic bolt. as well, right? Yes. So... And a lightning bolt is a 2.0 on, on the moment magnitude scale. So that just oh. kind of gives a kind of perspective of what kind of energy we're looking okay. at here. So. Okay. okay. I see. You got it? Yeah. You did. So there's different types of damage that occurs. This is the last thing we're going to talk about because this podcast has been way too long, but earthquakes are so interesting. <laughs> I could talk about them for way too long. And the thing about earthquakes that makes them so dangerous is when they're close to people. Right. So a lot of these hazards that we talk about, volcanoes, we did the same thing. We don't really have problems with the earth until the earth brings the problems to us. <laughs> so as long as you don't live near a fault zone and there aren't any seismic activities, it's not really an issue. Well, if there aren't atomic bomb testing. <laughs> yeah. If there aren't any buildings to destroy, it's not really an issue. If you're in the middle of an open field and an earthquake happens, it's very unlikely that anything would happen to you. It would have to be a crazy strong, big earthquake to throw you in the air. Other than that, you're just going to maybe fall down, you know, you'd be like, ah, <laughs> yeah. my feet are unsteady, you know, nothing's going to happen to you, you know. So the the main problem that we have with milk, with 
earthquakes is, you know, damage to structures and secondary damage caused by other things that were occurring at the earthquake. So some of the damage that caused that is caused by earthquake is from seismic vibrations. So okay. we get things like structural damage. So it's based on the intensity, the duration of the earthquake, the material that the structure rests on, and the design of the structure itself, which is mm -hmm. why it's so important that they put in earthquake zoning laws for places like California where you have, you know, earthquakes all the time. Mm -hmm. And even in Mineral Virginia, in that earthquake, there's actually a nuclear power plant that's not too far from there. It's at yes, Lake it's Anna. Concern. Yes, and everybody was freaking out about it. So it's at Lake Anna. Now the thing is, Lake Anna, which is not it's not super far away from Mineral. I don't remember exactly how far it is, but Lake Anna is a man-made lake that was built specifically for the nuclear power plant that's there. And during the earthquake, to the nuclear have it as a backup cooling. No, it's the is main cooler. It... Yeah, oh, it's the main it? cooler for the nu the nuclear power oh, plant. Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. I've been yeah, that's the whole Anna. reason it was built. Yeah, okay. that's the whole reason. That's why. When dad would drive the boat by the nuclear power plant, the water was so much hotter there because you yep. need water for nuclear power. Oh, no, I Otherwise understand. It just, uh, I mean, probably our, we didn't talk about that another time, but meltdown. I understand. Yes. But anyway, so um, we had, <laughs> and that's why the fish had three eyes. And so we, <laughs> so anyway, the, the power plant there had a fail-safe system that was installed by the engineers. So if there was too much shaking that occurred, there would be an automatic shutdown of mm. the nuclear the power plant. Yeah, mm. the reactor. And there was something set up for, it's something that's set up for all nuclear power plants. It's mm -hmm. common protection. The thing is, when it had been built, which I think was in the 60s or 70s, I think it was in the 60s, it had never been tested by an actual earthquake because there hadn't been an earthquake. Right, yes. So 2011 was the first actual earthquake that occurred since they had built the system. Mm. Uh, the best part about it was that it actually worked. It shut, down, <laughs> it shut down the power plant. And Perhaps. I bet there were some engineers that were just drinking that night that were just like cavorting with all their Cheering. friends, high-fiving yeah. each other, like, man, we did so good. Yeah. Because uh, it did its job. It did what it was supposed to do, which was great. So that's, that's just something to consider is that's why we have these, you know, hazard management mm -hmm. designs is for specific purposes like this. You you design for what you – it's kind of a soft spot between what you have the money for and what you expect to happen, you know? Mm -hmm. So, well, but the thing about like a nuclear power plant is the damage from that malfunctioning is catastrophic. So the the risk is super high regardless of what happens, right? So you yes. would the money goes into making that safe. Yes, but ideally. they're not going to but they're not going to plan for a 9.0. They're not going to no. put in the mitigation that you would get for like a 9.0. Japan no, no, has no. much stricter regulations for their nuclear power plants than they do yeah. in the East Coast of the US and it's for yes. a reason. Yes. But so structural damage, um, seismic vibrations also occur with amplification. So if you have, sorry, that was kind of a wordy sentence, but if you have soft sediments. I'm just waiting for you to explain it. It's fine. Yes. Don't if you have soft sediments, if you have some goo sediments, okay, they actually amplify waves way more than hard sediments. So hard sediments, if you have hard bedrock, the waves can travel faster, farther, but because they're traveling faster, they don't have as much time to shake things around. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? If you have soft sediments and the, the energy is kind of stuck in one place, you get a lot more damage because you get a lot more shaking. Hmm. But it doesn't okay. spread out nearly as far. It's a much smaller area that okay. you get it in. So an easy example of this would be the in Alaska, 1964, hmm. there was an earthquake with a moment magnitude of 9.2, wow. which is incredible. It's huge. Mm -hmm. It's not the biggest because we talked about Chile earlier, <laughs> yes. but it's almost the biggest. The buildings in Anchorage, 
for situated on unconsolidated sediments. So like sediments, just loose sediment. They weren't, um, they were under normal conditions, they were solid, right? It mm -hmm. was solid ground, but they, during an earthquake, they moved an incredible amount. And so you got heavy structural damage in Anchorage mm. because of that. Versus White Ear, White Ear was nearer to the epicenter of the earthquake, mm -hmm. but the buildings there were on granite, which is solid, solid mm -hmm. bedrock. So they, the buildings were- actually on like exposed granite? No, the, like I mean, there's, soil, you know, there's soil or... and stuff. Yeah. yeah, okay. There's soil and stuff above it, but they were on granite. And okay. so because of that, their, their buildings weren't damaged by shaking there. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, they were also closer to the tsunami because they were closer to the coast, mm -hmm. but that's, you know, they weren't damaged by the shaking, let's just yeah. say. And there's, this, this yeah, there's other side effects. Yeah. Yes. But this earthquake, this earthquake went on for a full four minutes, which wow. is crazy. That's a really long time for an earthquake. Yeah, normally they're not. Yeah, the well, earthquake that we had in Japan one? was like a couple of seconds that we were yeah. we were experiencing that. And same with the mineral one. It was I like, would say the mineral one was like probably less like 30 than a minute. seconds. Yeah. yeah so maybe a minute, which maximum. is much more common. So. At least the like wiggly, really wiggly part was probably I mean, it couldn't have been more than a minute for sure. Yeah. It was not it was not terrible. I think you can hear the sound first. Like I heard yes. the sound first. That the sound was like... travels faster than the than the surface yeah, waves. That's right. So you would hear the sound first. Yeah. So another type of damage that occurs, which I think is the most interesting one to study, but the most horrifying one is liquefaction. And Ellen is also horrified of liquefaction. Oh, my eyes are huge. Yes. So this is what happens when you have unconsolidated materials, so like loose sediments that are saturated with water, which is common. This is a common thing that we have you know, all over the world. It's how we There's get a lot of, water. Yeah. yeah, it's how we get a lot of aquifers. It's where we get a lot of our source water from. We'll talk about mm -hmm. aquifers probably another time, but that's where people get their water from. Mm -hmm. And when the earth vibrates, what happens is it turns this stable soil into a fluid. It's mm -hmm. just like a, a beautiful fluid and oh. it cannot support structures at all. So what happens is you have things like buildings that just sink. It's like quicksand. It acts like quicksand right. and the buildings just sink below the surface of the ground and then once the shaking stops it solidifies again so you just have half of a building into the ground and in 1906 in the san francisco earthquake the a lot of the buildings in the bay in san francisco mm -hmm. bay in california were on unconsolidated bay segments so a lot of buildings just like the first floor was just underground you should look up some of those pictures ellen because it's crazy no, i'm already horrified <laughs> we'll see uh <laughs> You know, several of them just, they just ended up completely underground. Some of them you could just see roofs barely. It was, um, uh, it was a thing that happened. And, um, another example I'm, of this. I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll be interested to see it, but yes. One of the things that we saw when there was the earthquake in Japan in 2011, what was the, oh, you remember the, what was the name? The Tohoku one? earthquake. Yes. So the Tohoku earthquake in March of 2011, yeah, it was a 9.1 on the movement magnitude scale it was a and big deal it was it was a big big deal and we'll probably yeah we'll probably talk about that as a separate episode just because it's it, it could take up a whole episode mm -hmm. but what happened is the earthquake caused liquefaction because there's a lot of places in japan that are just unconsolidated sediments that are full of water mm. so it you can find these crazy videos on youtube of people in like parks in japan and you can watch as the ground is shaking and suddenly it just creates this fissure in the ground it just so breaks apart awesome. and water starts to come out of the ground and you're like uh <laughs> it's really horrifying to watch okay. it's it's kind of 
it, it's incredible to see. And you just see people just walking around this park. And I'm like, I don't even know. There are places where... You don't want to be on that ground when that's happening. Soil liquefaction in Japan. But basically what happens oh, is... Oh, Jesus. The, the yeah. ground is moving. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's like kneeling on the ground because it's like wiggling. Oh, there's the water. Oh, my God. Oh, it's just coming out of the ground. <laughs> It's really scary. Oh, it's, it's horrifying. It's something out of a horror movie. Like, horror movies don't do it justice. That's how scary it is. People who are driving their cars in this kind of sediment, they, they a lot of times you can find car like pictures of cars that are just, just stuck in solid mud now. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like, yeah, on a street, so it's like a paved uh, sidewalk, this video that I'm watching. Yeah, which is why it cracks open. Oh. It's, it's brittle. We learned about this. Oh, there's this. so much. Oh, it's coming from like everywhere where this person is now. They're running. Yeah, I would be. Should have yeah, run a the park is ago. the park is unconsolidated sediments, so that's why they didn't build any buildings on it. Well, also, I mean, it's just like the sidewalk. You know how like in Japan, all the sidewalk is like pavers a lot of yeah. the time. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's just coming up. Yeah, they just the open and close. Yeah, exactly. The one horrifying video, uh, which isn't the one that I found, was the one where the park, the ground was just opening up. Yeah, I've seen that too. Cracking, which is like it's really scary anyway it's horrifying okay, yeah we'll move great. on to the next terrifying thing that happens from shaking is landslides and ground subsidence or yes. subsidence so people say subsidence so in 1964 in the alaska earthquake the greatest damage the greatest damage that was there was from actually a landslide um and ground subsidence so what happened was in alaska alaska this part of alaska is on the coast right and the there was this big old bluff that was next to the coast that was called Turnagain Heights, okay? So Turnagain Heights, actually, when the earthquake occurred, it caused a crack at the top of the bluffs. And within seconds, the there was a block of land that was in front of that crack. It just slid into the ocean. What? Just slid down into the ocean. It didn't okay. go all the way in. Not all of it went all the way in, but it slid all the way down to the ocean. And it was about 200 acres of land. It took wow. less than five minutes for this to happen. But what had happened was because this block was sitting on a layer of clay, the clay was really slippy. There wasn't a high coefficient of friction. So when the fault occurred, it just slipped right down, right off it, down into the ocean. Oh. So that's that was a landslide. And then Anchorage, the downtown business part of Anchorage, actually dropped, physically dropped vertically about 10 feet. So like what? the entire That's the a, entire like structure of, of downtown. Yeah, the entire structure. It was land subsidence. So the land subsided down. <laughs> wow. And compressed. And so the build everything dropped really? about ten feet. Yeah. Wow. About three meters. Crazy. It's <laughs> That's insane. Ellen's face keeps looking more and more scared as we go over this. I knew that we would get to this part of the episode at some point. I just forgot how horrified that I would become. Yeah. You can look up pictures of the anchorage because that was like 1964 so yeah there's photos of there's like black and white photos for sure of a bunch so if of you stuff. look up the heights you can see you can see diagrams if you could look like look up diagrams of the bluff and you can see just a huge chunk of land just slid mm -hmm. into the ocean and uh yeah it was bad there's also one of the other side effects i say side effects but one of the kind of the type secondary of secondary effects of damage that you get from earthquakes is fire. Fire is a really common problem. It does seem to be a big problem. It was. I think it was more of a problem years and years ago. I think we have designed some more fail safes into our, like our electric systems and our gas systems, mm. but it still is. It still is a huge yeah. problem. Buildings aren't always made of wood anymore. Yeah, that's the <laughs> thing about 1906, the San Francisco earthquake that they had. The, there was a terrible, terrible fire that occurred 
and a lot of it was because those structures were all built from wood so what they actually had to do was it was wood and they had exposed gas and electrical lines that were cut and then they were exposed and there was a fire for three whole days the fire raged wow it destroyed 500 blocks of the city and Gee, how big is san francisco like how many blocks are there? right like the the thing is they on. couldn't they couldn't control the fire because the water lines had also been destroyed by the earthquake right so they couldn't get water to put out They're the flames the ocean so this is what they did ellen they okay. created a fire break at the mm -hmm. edge of the fire okay. by dynamiting a line of buildings no. yes wow. they dynamited an entire line of buildings so they had an edge for the fire that it couldn't yes. catch flame anymore yeah yes uh, remove the remove the fuel yeah so they did and that that's the fire and then in 1923 japan also had a really bad earthquake i don't remember mm -hmm. the magnitude for that one and it was it was in tokyo it was in the tokyo region in yokohama it's called which, yokohama which is like south of tokyo great kanto earthquake i think probably it is a 7.9 on the magnitude magnitude scale Ooh. september 1st 1923 the great kanto earthquake thank you google ellen for looking up the name for me i appreciate you i'm on top yeah. of it <laughs> so this earthquake it actually created about 250 different fires that oh outbreak from this it devastated this is a fire tornado yeah so what was happening was there was the reason why it was so bad is because there were really high winds just like mm -hmm. unusually high winds at the time so just continually spread the flames all over it it wrecked yokohama it destroyed mm -hmm. more than half of the homes in tokyo wow it was devastating it was a terrible mm -hmm. it was terrible so there was also so now, a tsunami according to this i was about was to say 12 so, meters that's a good segue because <laughs> I know that we're probably going to be an hour and a half at least for this particular podcast. So I'm sure the people are done listening to us rant about how scary <laughs> earthquakes are. And for now, I did want to bring up, I think our next topic will be tsunamis. Ooh. What is a tsunami? And we'll probably also talk about coastal morphology so you understand why tsunamis effects are so devastating. Okay. So, so they're, so they're directly related. Earthquake, earthquake problems part two. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, yeah. It's earthquake part two, electric boogaloo. So. <laughs> We will, we will talk about Awful that next boogaloo. time. Awful yes. So we wanted to tell you, if you have any questions for us or any comments or concerns, or if you want to talk about a specific topic, or if you have your own earthquake experiences you want to tell us about, we would be happy to see them. Um, it's always interesting hearing firsthand accounts of a variety of different geological features. Mm -hmm. And you can send it to us at our various social medias. Ellen, what are they? Yeah, so you can, you can send us a DM on Twitter or message, message us on Instagram. So our handle for both of those is said my dear pod. So at said my dear pod, S E D M Y D E A R P O D. You can also uh, send us a message through our website, which is sedimentarymydear.com, or you can also email us at sedimentarypodcast at gmail.com. Woohoo. We hope to hear from you. Yeah, please. We like hearing from people. You can also we still do. tell us about your favorite rocks and minerals. Yeah, you can absolutely do that. You can tell us You can tell us if you found the spooky episode spooky or if you <laughs> want to know more about spooky things or if you're interested in more geomorphology. We're definitely going to get into more geomorphology or if you're like, wow, volcanoes. I, I was volcanoes. near a volcano one time. But I it was hot. Try to cook a steak on it. But, you know, <laughs> those would also a be... missed opportunity, obviously, <laughs> on your part. But... Those would also be good things that we would love to hear from you about. Okay, so next time, continuing some of the horror of earthquakes slash talking about the sea perfect thank you so much see you next time thank you for listening we'll see you then bye bye
The main source for this episode is Earth, an Introduction to Physical Geology, 9th Edition, by Tarbuck and Lutkins. Music for its sedimentary, my dear, is provided by Solar Slays. You can find his music at youtube.com slash user slash C-C-F-U-L, S-E-A-S-E-A-F-U-L.